From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. How do we write women into history when their presence is only faintly attested to by the remaining sources? How can fiction help us in imagining their lives? Is it legitimate to write fictionalised versions of real people? Why does the excitement of the British Civil War not seem to grip people as the Tudors do? These are questions that we address in today's podcast. My guest is Dr Miranda Malins, a writer and historian specialising in the history of Oliver Cromwell, his family and the politics of the interregnum period following the Civil Wars. Her PhD is from the University of Cambridge, and she continues to speak at conferences and publish journal articles and book reviews. She's also a trustee of the Cromwell Association and works as a commercial solicitor in the city. And as if that weren't enough to fill her time, she began writing historical novels on maternity leave, which is impressive as I spent mine bleary-eyed and covered in vomit. And today we're going to be talking about the research behind her recent second novel, The Rebel Daughter, which is published by Orion. Miranda Malins, it's wonderful to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Susanna. It's wonderful to be here with you. So this is very exciting. This is the second book in a series. The first was The Puritan Princess, which I've read. But can you recap for those who are joining the series and might be just picking up volume two, The Rebel Daughter? Of course. So yes, there are two books now in this series, and they focus on the women of Oliver Cromwell's family. Oliver Cromwell being the less familiar Cromwell to your Tudor fan listeners, I assume, than Thomas. But yes, great, great, great nephew of Thomas. And the books tell the story of his rise through the 1640s, through the civil wars, and eventually to his becoming Lord Protector, which was effectively king or head of state. But through the eyes of his daughters. The Puritan princess is told through the eyes of his youngest daughter, Frances, and tells the story of her life as a quasi-princess living in the courts of Hampton Court Palace and Whitehall as well. Again, familiar for your Tudor fans. And then the rebel daughter goes back a decade, actually. It's a prequel and tells the extraordinary rise of Oliver Cromwell from tenant farmer to effectively head of state through the eyes of his oldest daughter, Bridget. So she's the rebel daughter of the new book's title. And it's interesting that you've done this as a prequel, in part because it means you're imagining yourself into the kind of spaces that we have in the biography of Cromwell, but also just because it's unusual for people to take that approach. Why did you decide to set it earlier? That's a really good question. And actually, it probably comes from the fact that I'm coming at this as a historian who's now trying to write fiction rather than the other way around. 
And I've been thinking a lot about how do we overcome the challenge in writing about real people, whereby we know what happens to them. And for a lot of people reading about Cromwell, they would know perhaps that he's on the victorious parliamentary side in the Civil War. He eventually maybe ends up as head of state and he dies and the king comes back in 1660. But I wanted to capture by going backwards, I almost wanted to acknowledge that we know that about him and to unspool backwards almost. So I start The Rebel Daughter consciously with Cromwell at his lowest ebb, where he's just a tenant farmer and he's standing in the fields in freezing cold January and he's repairing a hurdle and he's in his fields working really grubby in the earth of England. And I really wanted the reader if they've already read The Puritan Princess, which is set at his opulent court where he's head of state, to open the book and think, oh God, wait a minute, how did that guy come from this guy? How did the one become the other? But equally, they work well the other way around as well. If you want to read The Rebel Daughter about the 1640s and then read The Puritan Princess about the 1650s, that works too. You mentioned there that you are a historian, you have a PhD in history. So what was it? about writing an imagined version of the past that drew you in? Why have you decided to write fiction as opposed to non-fiction? Several things. Most importantly, I would say it's the women. I've studied Cromwell for many years and the politics of his rule. And it's only in recent years I started to look at the women in his family and their roles. And I realised increasingly that they were totally central to his inner life, his emotional life, but also his court when he was Lord Protector. It was a very domestic sort of setup. He had his wife and his adult children and his grandchildren all around him all the time. They have the nearest rooms to his in Hampton Court and in Whitehall. He famously takes his grandchildren with him into Council of State meetings and has them sitting on his lap. This is kind of proto-Victoria and Albert. This is a real dynastic family in the making here. And I wanted to write about them, but they are so marginalised in the sources, as women are so often in the periods that we both work in. And I felt that actually I could write a non-fiction history book about them, but I would be so frustrated all the time because I'd have to keep saying, I imagine that Mrs. Cromwell felt X when this happened. And I just didn't want to keep having to make that leap as a historian. I suddenly thought, well, actually, why don't I turn this around? Why don't I take what I know about them from the sources, but then imagine the things that we don't know and recreate them and then tell the story that way. Also, the drama of this period was why I fell in love with it in the first place. And as an academic, when I was doing my PhD, my supervisor would regularly write in the margin of the thesis, he'd write S-I-F-T-N, which stood for save it for the novel. Because <laughs> I would go off onto these ridiculous descriptions of nameless cloaked horsemen riding through the countryside in the middle of the night and that kind of thing. But the thing is, it is such an inherently dramatic and wonderfully visual epic period of history and actually I think a lot of history writing misses that drama in an effort to see very scholarly come across as very dry and this way I don't have to lecture my readers I don't have to bang on the drum of all my various pet peeves about the assumptions people bring to this period I can just show them instead which is so much nicer. Yes, and there's certainly a real sense in it that the details of everyday life are very plausible, very evocative. I mean, I love the descriptions of food. I love the fact that you talked about the watch between the first and second sleeps of the night or banking down the fire for the night, all this sort of stuff, this sort of detail that really brings it to life. Do you enjoy writing that kind of stuff? Yes, I really do. And thank you so much for that. I really enjoy writing that because... 
that's what we try and do as historians anyway, isn't it, really? We're trying to get ourselves into the mindset of the people that we're writing about. And actually, I find because I still write and I continue to write academic and nonfiction work, and oddly, I find that my having written about the same people and the same political events as a novelist actually enhances my nonfiction writing because it's given me greater insight and sense of how these people felt and what were the sights and smells, yes, but also what mattered to them in their worldview, what were their hopes and dreams and ambitions. This sense, a bit like Hilary Mantel brings to her wonderful writings about Thomas Cromwell, this sense that, again, coming back to this question of as historians, we know what happens in the end for all of these characters. But what the novelist is trying to do is to put the reader into the position whereby they don't know that or they suspend their knowledge of that. So actually, all the extraordinary choices that are available to these characters every day, especially during the civil wars and interregnum, where these people are having to make these huge decisions of conscience. It's called the age of conscience for a good reason every day about which way to turn. They didn't know what was going to happen next. As I like to say, these people in the 1650s, they didn't know that they were living in the interregnum, as we historians like to call it, i.e. between the two reigns of one Charles and another. They didn't know that. They thought they might be living through the opening act of a republic, maybe the foundation of the House of Cromwell. And things had turned out differently. Cromwell and the Cromwell family could have the status for us here of, say, George Washington in the US. So the fun that you can have as a novelist and the lesson that you learn as a historian from trying to write in a fictional way as well is that, is to open your eyes to all the possible roads that are open in front of these real people. Let's talk about the fact that you write about real people. I can see over your shoulder, Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel. But I recently spoke to Kate Moss as well, who obviously writes about the 16th century in her novels. And she talked about the fact that she feels that there's a danger in historical fiction of putting imagined ideas into the early modern people, because then we run the risk of distorting history. Now, you write stories about real historical people. So I wondered how you felt about that. I do absolutely see Kate's point about that. And it is a danger. And I do feel a great sense of responsibility towards the people that I'm writing about because they were real people and they really existed. And so I'm very, very conscious that I have a responsibility to their memories to not misinterpret what they do or to portray them in an unfair way. But I guess where I differ from Kate is that I actually really like that as a challenge. And it's probably, again, comes back to my historian background. I found writing about real people, it's both a joy and a challenge. And it sort of hinders you, but also helps you. It hinders you because you can't just do what you want with them. You can't kill them off, have them marry other people, (laughs) because you have to portray what actually happened. But then on the flip side of that is, I really love that challenge of being given a narrative and then being forced to massage a really great plot out of it. I won't give away any spoilers. In both the books, various people die unexpectedly at various times. And if I'd made those characters up, I probably wouldn't have done that. But actually writing about them when I know that they did die at those moments feels very special. It feels very magical to have that connection to real people and what really happened to them. And then to try and bring these people to life again. And again, I know Hilary Mantel's spoken about this with Thomas Cromwell. 
You feel a huge sort of relationship with these people. And it's a joy to feel that you are bringing their names to the attention of a modern readership. And I would always hope that anyone reading my books obviously picks them up from the shelves, from the fiction section and knows that these are novels. But I really do try very hard not to mess around with my characters, not to put them in places where they weren't, not to change fundamentals of their life and to represent them as best as I possibly can based on what I know of them. And I suppose, given what you were saying earlier, you might actually argue that it allows you to do something more truthful than you might be able to do otherwise. The picture you painted of Cromwell as an indulgent family man that comes out in the novels isn't one that we see in many sources, but writing it as a novel gives you a chance to present that. Absolutely. And you've put your finger on probably my favourite element of this whole process. A friend of mine described what I'm trying to do as almost to fictionalise academic history, which sounds strange, but it's almost taking arguments or points of view that I have as a historian. So for instance, the one you just flagged, which is that Cromwell is often thought of in our kind of popular consciousness as being very dour and you know puritanical and militant and grey and joyless. And he kills the king, he cancels Christmas, he gets his kicks from pulling down maples and all this. Obviously, there's some truth in that. But there's a whole other side to Cromwell, which is never, ever, ever shown or written about, which is this devoted family man and this moderate political figure who is really good at negotiation and appeasement and who is very much about bringing people together, bringing people along with him. He had an extraordinary ability and talent as a leader, was very charismatic. And the idea of bringing to life that side of him and also taking readers back to what were really royal courts. His court at Whitehall and Hampton Court was very similar in many ways to his Stuart predecessors and to Charles II's. There was fashion, there was art, there was music, there was even masks were brought back. There was protocol, there were feasts and banquets and dancing. And we just totally forget about that in our neat story of kings and queens. To be able to use novels to show that court and to show that other side of Cromwell is deeply, deeply satisfying. As you listen to this, me and Team History Hit are on our way down to the Weddell Sea joining the expedition mounted by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost endurance shipwreck in Antarctica with regular episodes and updates dropping in the feed throughout the month. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, 
Oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. that you take as you've said is the women's perspective so in the puritan princess as you've just said you've got cromwell's youngest daughter francis and here you've got his oldest daughter bridget or biddy and that means of course that you are constrained by what they know and what they experience and what they're doing from the narrator point of view so in the first i don't know is it quarter or third of this book this is a very domestic feminine tale and our protagonist strains at the quiet trivialities of feminine life do you suspect that many women did i do and this is a brilliant period for women actually because as so often in times of great upheaval especially through war women had a lot more opportunities to show strength in this period they had to defend their homes sometimes physically they took over their husbands businesses or enterprises when they were away fighting and we also have this wonderful emergence of women in the leveler movement who are writing political pamphlets and tracts and petitioning parliament there's this explosion of press and news books and we have also with the kind of widening of different religious sects and growing tolerance and the disestablishment of the church briefly church of england we have women preaching and speaking from pulpits and the other thing i would say is that again to counter this tedious puritanical 1066 and all that kind of idea we have of people like cromwell and his relations these weren't women dressed in black and with starched white collars who were seen and not heard and who were in the corners of rooms. If you look at the portraits of Cromwell's wife and his daughters, they're in these beautiful satin silk coloured gowns with pearls, with their hair in ringlets. They wouldn't look out of place in the gallery of Restoration Beauties, Charles II's mistresses. So the female perspective, I think, it is a fair one to make from this period because also academics increasingly actually are seeing that when you read Cromwell's letters, if you want to get a lot of the heart of what he feels about a topic, look at the letters he writes to his female relatives. He loved women, Cromwell, and took their opinions very, very seriously. And so I didn't feel that I was imposing a 21st century lens onto this period by making my female characters kind of agents in their own lives and having them be politically aware and part of these political conversations, because I really believe that they were. That being said, obviously, something which I had to include in the story and drives the story is particularly in the case of Bridget and the rebel daughter, is that she's constrained by the fact that she is a woman. Her opportunities for making an impact in the world and having a fulfilling life, she really sees that they might have to come through powerful men with whom she can make a difference. She does learn through the various women she meets in the book different modes of having female agency. So I have her influenced by Anne Fairfax, who's Thomas Fairfax's wife, who was called the Generaless, and that is true. She was nicknamed the Generaless because she was equally in charge of the army with her husband, which I love. 
love. And Elizabeth Lilburn, who's the pamphleteering brave wife of John Lilburn, and also through her sister Betty, through her mother, through other women that she meets. And Bridget learns and looks at different models of how to escape the confines of being a woman in this time, but also how to use those opportunities that are there for her. Finally, I would say that I actually really love writing through the women's perspective about these events and this period, because again, it forces me to be inventive. I can't have my characters actually taking part in the Battle of Marston Moor or the Battle of Naseby or sitting in Parliament in a debate or in a council of state meeting. But that's great, actually, because that means that I have to be creative about finding ways to tell the stories of the everyday things, extraordinary everyday things that are happening around those big events. So it leads to a much fresher take. I'm not just taking readers into Parliament or taking them onto the scaffold to watch the execution of Charles I. I'm thinking about what's happening in the Cromwell household on the morning of Charles I's execution. How are they getting there? Are they hiring a taxi? (laughs) It's nice. It gives you a chance to be a bit fresher. I was always aware, though, that I had to be creative to avoid just a sequence of constant scenes where women sit around eating and drinking and sewing and men bring them news, (laughs) which is very easy to just write that constantly. So I had to find inventive ways to bring the women into the story. And you do. I mean, you imagine the hidden role of women in diplomacy, women in the civil war. You mentioned the generalists, women in the baggage train, women advising their husbands. And actually, it reminded me of something that Hilary Mantel has said about primary source evidence that she has drawn on to write her Wolf Hall trilogy, which is that she said that she thinks that lines quite often that are on the record may have been practiced off the record first. And in some ways, when you have, say, Bridget advising her husband on a course of action, which we then know historically will go on to be implemented, you're playing with that possibility as well, that the lines that are delivered, in this case, the steps that are taken by the men and those that are on the historical record were actually quietly, secretly enacted or voiced by the women first. And I find that a really interesting way of looking at the possibilities of history. I'm very glad that you think that and that you took that from the novel. That was very much my intention. And again, as you say, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that. We only need to think about the fact that our own relationships now with our partners or husbands and Human beings don't change that much. Obviously, the past is another country, but equally, when you have Oliver and Elizabeth Cromwell's marriage, which was very, very close, and they were married for many decades, it's impossible to imagine that the couple didn't talk about what was going on in their lives, and they didn't seek advice from one another. And certainly, the Puritan attitude to marriage was that it was central absolutely central to leading a godly life and to one's kind of earthly happiness, but also one's ability to be godly and to love God. And as an example, this is an example of a few of these points, actually, we have a wonderful letter from Oliver to Bridget, his daughter, in 1646, a few months after her marriage. And he's urging a couple of things. Firstly, he's giving her marriage advice. He's urging her to love her husband because of the image of Christ that he offers to her. 
it's this notion of God being part of your marriage, just three of you in your marriage that he's talking about. And he calls her dear heart. He says, dear heart, press on, which I love from a father to a daughter. It's just lovely. And this letter is not very long, but it's a great example of how you can get into these relationships that, as you were just talking about and with Hilary Mantel, aren't necessarily there in the record, or at least haven't been picked up before. So Oliver says to Bridget, who's living with her husband and with the army at the time, at the beginning, he says, I'm paraphrasing, I'm writing to you rather than your husband, because I know if I write to him, it'll cause him to stay up far too late writing back. So that's a real insight into the character of her husband, who was an absolute workaholic and it drove himself to his death, actually, by working too hard. It also shows that Oliver felt that writing to Bridget, his daughter, was a viable and a valid channel of communication to send his thoughts to his son-in-law, who was his deputy in military matters. And then also at the very end of the letter, he says something like, do pass on my love or gratitude or whatever to the general and the generaless, i.e. Sir Thomas Fairfax and Anne. And he says something like, I know how much they're looking after you and I'm indebted to them for that. So again, we've got a snapshot here of Bridget as a young army wife being looked after, actually, as she embarks on marriage by the commander in chief and his wife, socially speaking, while they all live with the army. And her father, who's away on a different campaign, writing to her, not only as his beloved daughter, but also as a means of communicating to her husband, who's a key colleague of his. It doesn't take too many steps to place Bridget right at the heart of everything that's happening there. Oh, that's lovely. I suppose one thing you do have to grapple with is something that might be quite unfamiliar to your readers, which is thinking about the nature of faith in the 17th century. And you've said you don't want to make the Puritans appear dour, but we've got their internalisation of a strict moral code. Perhaps you might see that as Bridget's response to catching her younger sister kissing a man. So how do you go about approaching this? What did you feel it was crucial to convey about the nature of religion, the nature of faith in the 17th century? And also, how do you do that without making it seem alienating to a modern audience? Actually, that's really interesting because when I was first scoping out writing The Rebel Daughter, I had this discussion with my agent as to whether Bridget would make a sort of likeable enough heroine because she really is quite puritanical and strict. Whereas Francis in The Puritan Princess is quite fun and a bit less of a sort of godly maid. It was a bit easier with her. But with Bridget, I felt I wanted to embrace that side of her personality. And again, we do know this from the sources that she was very godly and perceived to be as such and honoured for it and valued for it. So I definitely wanted to have that as part of who she is. But as you say, you don't want to overlabor that point because you can alienate a modern readership. So I guess where I try to fit it in is to sneak it in almost as part of the sort of mental and emotional landscape of how she thinks about things and how she thinks about herself. So I have her quite often reaching back for kind of biblical quotes or ideas or proverbs in order to make sense of the world around her and of her choices and of who she is and what her duties are. So rather than having her, you know, constantly talking about God or lecturing other people, I preferred to have her faith in there as part of her thoughts, how she sees things. That way I felt that I was being true to her faith in incorporating it into her character, but I wasn't making her start every dialogue, every conversation with a sermon. But it's a tricky one, and I know one that many novelists writing in our period, in the early modern period, 
have to find a way through that one. And it is another reason why I think this period is overly neglected in popular consciousness, because people do find that alienating, that very strong faith. When you have parents talking about how they overcame the loss of their children, loss of their babies, and there was such a high infant mortality rate then, you have to understand that they did feel in many cases that their babies were actually only lent by God to them on a temporary basis. And that if God called them back, that was terribly sad and they missed them enormously. But that was God's plan for that child. That was providence in action. But again, as with so many things, it's so complicated. We therefore don't want to take that too far and imagine that these people didn't love their children and didn't have the kind of human feelings that we have now. So it's a question of finding the humanity in the people of this period. And that's not difficult. If you immerse yourself in this world, they're brilliant, compelling people with such wonderful lives and such commitment to the causes they fight for. They're just terribly vivid and earnest and brave people, which is why I like to study them from this period. We need to find the human beings that we can relate to, but then also not do them the disservice of just whitewashing them and making them conform to the kind of people who we are now, but trying to allow some of their mental world to shine through the pages so that we're fair to them as well. So many things I want to pick up on. First of all, I think that you answer a question I was going to ask you, and you may have something else to say about it as well, which is, why don't we love the Civil War as much as we love the Tudors? Is it that nature of faith in the period? This is such a fundamental question that I end up boring people with at drinks parties endlessly because I love the Tudors too. So please don't think I'm going to bash the Tudors. I thought a lot about this over the last 15 or so years. And I think there are a few answers. I think that this period is seen as just very, very complicated. The wars themselves are so complicated with shifting allegiances. And so to understand those, we are also spoiled, I think, by the fact that the king is restored in 1660. So I think a lot of people have a sense of, did this really matter at the end of the day? Because the king comes back anyway. So getting back to our neat wooden ruler, we go back to Charles, you know, we go back to William William Henry Stephen. So we can just skip over that bit because it doesn't matter. So I think that's a problem, that kind of periodization problem. And I think also, sounds facetious, but Puritans are just thought of as being not very sexy. The parliamentarians, I think they're hugely sexy and brilliant and brave and compelling. But you have to work so hard to overcome the stereotype people have that the people who were active in this period, particularly on the parliamentarian side, were very joyless and boring and just like to cancel things, which is very hard. Again, we come back to that juxtaposition with the Merry Monarch in 1660, and which is far too emphasised, I always think. In my writing, both nonfiction and fiction, I always try and emphasise the continuity from the interregnum into the restoration period, actually, because there's so much more continuity there than we ever allow ourselves to think of. We like to put the messy 1640s and 50s in a box and say, that's really messy and weird. Let's just leave that there. And we'll skip straight on to the narrative we do understand, which is monarchy and fun loving and theatre and coffee houses. And <laughs> let's just forget about it. So those are just a handful of reasons for why I think it is overlooked. And it does suffer by comparison. The Tudors are so enormously popular with good reason. And then the later periods, the restoration 
onwards is, as I say, also terribly popular. And so the period ends up being squeezed from both sides and not really studied enough in schools. But I do think that as a nation, we have a fundamental problem, almost a sort of psychological problem with how we deal with this period. We don't know how to fit it into our neat national story. And the other thing you addressed in your previous answer was something I wanted to put to you as well. And again, you might have more to say on this. Your book reminded me of the great trauma of the Civil War, the death toll being so high that you might have friends on opposite sides. And this is set against the backdrop of a pretty traumatic set of circumstances in terms of the possibilities of loss of children and early family death. How do people live with this trauma? Is it chiefly by appealing to a sense of God's will and acceptance? Or is there anything else that we could look to? I think you're absolutely right to characterise it as such. It is a deeply, deeply traumatic period and one which leaves abiding scars really on our nation up until today, even if we don't necessarily know those scars are there. They are there. And I think that in terms of the losses that people have to cope with, it is extraordinary. The Cromwell family, just to give them as an example, Oliver and Elizabeth Cromwell, they have nine children and six of those nine children survive into adulthood, far into adulthood, as it were, which is a pretty good average, pretty good innings, actually, for the day. Enormously traumatic for them. They lose one in infancy and they lose all three sons. One is a baby and they lose one aged about 18 away at school from illness. And a third one they lose actually through illness, but during the Civil War. Young Oliver Jr. is fighting for Parliament and he dies of camp fever. So there's a huge amount of upset that these characters have to go through. And Again, where you can see how they feel about these things is in their correspondence. And Cromwell writes terribly moving letters about some of these deaths. And he writes a letter about his nephew who dies at the Battle of Marston Moor. And he writes a letter to his brother-in-law, who's the father of Cromwell's nephew, giving the news that his son has died. And it is famous and justifiably famous as one of the kind of most moving letters about bereavement, giving condolence in English history. And he says these beautiful things about how this young man was taken off by God almost, and he was precious to God. And that's why he was lost almost. And you can see that this desperation they felt to make sense of these losses and that there was meaning behind them. And you can understand why you would try and feel that way about the loss when you have to go through these losses. But again, it's something which I find writing as a novelist about these people has been enormously helpful because most historians, and I include myself in this before I was writing fiction, just list these children of the Cromwells who died and never think about them again. You just take them off, little footnotes. But actually, that would have made a huge difference to the family. The Cromwell family lose their eldest son twice over. So twice the oldest surviving son dies. All the younger siblings are shifted around. Richard Cromwell, who ends up becoming Lord Protector after Oliver, should never have been Oliver's heir. He was his, you know, third or fourth child. 
And again, I think that's all very important for understanding the relationships between these people and the expectations they have for one another. So trying to understand the trauma of this period and with the rebel daughter, actually, I very consciously have been trying to, again, overturn the assumption that people have about the English Civil War. People think it was just in England. It was just one war. It was lots of pitched battles. It was quite civilised. And then it you know, ended in the king's death, etc. Whereas actually it was a succession of wars three separate wars, each more and more desperate and brutal than the last one, and each with the theatre of conflict expanding, not just from England, but Britain, Ireland, and even beyond onto the continent, even as far as the New World. So I think that we need to face up to the brutality of this period and own it, actually, and learn from it and pay respect to it. And If we do that, we can see why the stakes are so high for every actor in this great drama. The stakes couldn't be higher, which makes it such a wonderful and exciting period to read about. In fact, you've also just pointed out exactly why the scars are still with us, because you mentioned Richard Cromwell, who is, of course, successor to Oliver Cromwell. And if he had been up to the job, then we wouldn't have had Charles II back. The same could be argued if we go earlier in the century, if Prince Henry had lived rather than Prince Charles, who became Charles I. And Prince Henry was this glorious prince, Charles I, not so glorious in various ways and not so fitted to be a leader. So we actually see the course of history affected by this constant death and constant knocking out of some of the people who perhaps would have been better placed. Absolutely. And I love that parallel. I often think of that. Also of Henry VIII and his older brother, Arthur. There's quite a few of these examples, aren't there, through history. And then we have Stephen and Matilda. We have the white ship where the heir is lost, William Rufus as well. And it just changes everything. And as you say, there's the obvious point that someone else takes over. But there's also the question of how that person is perceived or what expectations are placed upon them. Talking about Charles I, I think the fact that he was not meant to become king and that his older brother was this glorious and fated and loved Renaissance prince who then died so tragically, it's got to be fundamental to Charles's slightly chippy kind of attitude to kingship and to his own kingship. We all feel that way just about our own families, don't we? And siblings and who we are in relation to our own families. And how much more so when it's a question of successor to a head of state. So absolutely. And again, it's something which I take from writing fiction into writing history. Now, when I write nonfiction about the Cromwell family, and I'm writing about them at the moment very much as a family and as a dynasty, I take those kind of family dynamics into account and actually take them seriously because I think they were important. And there are other ways in which you imagine how at the junctions of history, our protagonist might have gone down a different path and things might have gone a different, even a better way. You conjure up Cromwell and his son-in-law dreaming of a just society. And I felt a note of wistfulness here. Is that fair? It is fair. I'd say that's the romantic in me rather than the politician. So it's not so much me saying, I wish we'd had that regime that they were dreaming of. But I'm very interested in that dynamic between idealism and pragmatism. And in fact, my PhD actually was about the politicians who tried to make Cromwell king and you know how they then explained themselves and their choices of allegiance to Charles II come the restoration. And a lot of them tried to explain away the fact that they had tried to make Cromwell king to Charles II by saying, look, this is a good thing because this shows that we're monarchists and actually we're just pragmatists. Cromwell was the de facto best option at the time. 
And that argument in some cases was successful. And actually some men had continuing careers under Charles II, men who had been very close to Cromwell, again, comes back to our continuity point across the restoration boundary. But coming back to those junctures in history where you see the road not taken, I think that's just a wonderful way of thinking about history, isn't it? And one of the things that pulls us all in, it's often a sense of place. For me, it's a sort of extra sense, a bit like Spider-Man's sense or something. It's like I think of things in terms of the five senses, but I have an extra sort of history sense. <laughs> Wherever I go, I feel that sort of sense of place and the kind of creeping, spine-tingling feel you get when you go into an old room or you walk around Hampton Court. You just feel, wow, this is the same place. These are the same people. And I think this period itself, there were so many missed opportunities. There were so many forks in the road. And there were a lot of people who, when the king was restored, do end up going quietly into a sort of semi-retirement and feeling very, very wistful for the England that they have tried to create, they had almost created, the, the Britain that they tried to create, and for the Cromwellian regime that they had done so much to shore up. We have a lot of these politicians later in the 17th century sit around as very old men, trading stories by the fireside about this. And Cromwell himself is often wheeled out in public debate as a, a stick to beat Charles II with. It's really interesting because although obviously he's the great devil, once Charles II comes back, Cromwell is disinterred and hung, drawn and quartered and he's persona non grata. Interestingly, as the kind of shine wears off Charles II and the years go into his rule and actually he starts to you know, spend too much money or party too hard or make bad foreign policy decisions. People in Parliament, you find murmuring, Samuel Pepys does it in his diary, says little things like, I wouldn't have been like this in Cromwell's day or Cromwell wouldn't have done that. <laughs> And you just feel, oh, there you are. The road not taken. It's there. It's there in how we view where we are now. We always look back on where we could have gone instead. Would it be fair to say that your philosophy of writing historical fiction is to provide a subjunctive possible version of what might have been under the surface of history? So if the sources give us the layer on the top, you're having a little look underneath and saying, oh, it might have been this, it might have been that. Is that fair? I think that is fair. I like that idea. It's part archaeologist, part historian. The way I think of it as well is just, I'm always looking for a way in. I'm always looking to show to other people, to convince them to be as passionate about this period as I am. And to find entertaining ways to share that really. And to show these people as the wonderful characters that they were, and on their own terms and through their own voices. I always loved English literature at school. I was very tempted to study English, actually. It was a toss-up between English and history. So finding this blend between the two is really magical, I have to say. Thank you so much for speaking to me about this brand new book. We'll remind everybody of its name. It's called The Rebel Daughter. And I urge you to go and rush to your local independent bookshop or to your mass online retailer and buy a copy <laughs> because it's a wonderful read. And it really does take one into this period of the 1640s and 1650s so vividly and allows us to benefit from all your learning, but in this wonderfully entertaining way. Thank you for the read and thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Susanna. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.